and welcome to Business Disability Forum's podcast, Business Disability Debates. I'm Diane Lightfoot and I have the great honour and pleasure of being Chief Executive of Business Disability Forum. And this is the latest in our series of short podcasts to examine and discuss the topics of the day. So today I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Courtney Swaby to discuss mental health and more in the run-up to World Mental Health Day on the 10th of October. Hello, Courtney, and thank you very much for joining me today. Hi, Diane. How are you doing? Always the better for seeing you, Courtney. Pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's it's really nice to have you kind of front of camera rather than behind the scenes. And I think, uh, I think for the first time, uh, sharing story about your mental health publicly. So firstly, thank you very much for doing that. And um, why now? It has been a long time coming, definitely. I most probably, if I really thought, think about it long and hard, I was absolutely terrified, actually, in this particular podcast, purely because I was worried about what people might think. Um, who may know me, I was worried about the stigma that comes with mental health and I, I really had to put myself out there and say, well, you know what, I have to change. If we want change, sometimes it has to come from within or you have to be a part of that change. So it was important for me to stand up and almost be counted as a, in, in, in order to say, you know, um, if we want to destigmatize uh, uh, mental health, it's really important for me to stand up and talk about it openly. I didn't speak very openly about it. I used to tell like one or two people. Um, I may talk about it in, in meetings that I was at, but I didn't really speak about it publicly like this. I felt it was really important for me to reach out to anybody who may be like me and that might uh, connect with my story, with who I am, and say, well, if he can do it, then uh, so can I. Well, well, thank you for doing that. And we, we know that storytelling is such a powerful way of making people feel safe to also share their story and to ask for what they need. And um, I think you've, um, you've shared with me uh, that experience of us both being at the Wharfability event a few years ago now. Yes. And um, I, was, I was very struck by how pretty much everyone who spoke talked about the the fear of stigma mm. of admitting that's an air quotes mm -hmm. um a weakness also in air quotes and that was true people at all levels all sectors all sorts of jobs so talking about it is is definitely a positive yeah can you tell our listeners about your own experience of mental ill health okay so Back in around 2002, I was going through a divorce. It was a rough one. It wasn't something that I wanted. And unbeknown to myself, it was beginning to show. And I remember going in to see a doctor for a completely unrelated incident. I remember the doctor turning around as I was leaving and saying that, you know, I wasn't my normal, cheery self. I'm somebody that is really kind of half glass full, which is annoying sometimes, especially first thing in the morning. Um, but, you know, I, I, I am somebody that um, really tries to look for the best in life. And suddenly I didn't have that sparkle in my eyes or that, that uh, way of being unbeknown to myself as I was walking out. I remember the doctor turning around and saying to myself, saying to me that, you know, you don't, you, you don't seem to be your normal self, Courtney. Is, is everything okay? And 
I must admit, at that particular moment, I thought to myself, what's he talking about? And then it just came, I, mean, I, I was so glad for the fact that he had asked me that question because then I just poured it out and I said, yeah, actually, I'm not getting on. Um, me and my, ex, my, my wife are going through a divorce and it's not something that I want. It's, it's really telling on me because I won't be able to be around my boys, my children, as much as I, you know, not waking up and seeing them every day and things like that. You know, that's really um, telling on me and it's not what I want. And he turned around and he said to me that, you know, I'd really um, like to offer you six counselling sessions to see if that will help you. And it was like a lifeline to me at the time, which I just didn't know existed. Um, and to be fair, at the time, I was almost going to say no. And the reason why I was going to say no is, again, because of the stigma. And then culturally, again, that's something that a lot of West Indians, Black people, do not talk openly about their um, situations and then things are going wrong, especially going to somebody who's classed as, and I'm doing the air quotes as well, um, a stranger um, outside of the family. Uh, so it was really um, something that I felt to myself that, you know, what harm would it, would it, would it cause? And if I'm just pouring my, my guts out now to the doctor, you know, just to imagine how far it would be to do that with somebody. And it was really good because when I went to see this person, it was non-judgmental and it helped centre me um, and really make me feel valued again. It's my self-worth, my, 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 my dignity, everything that, that was positive started coming back to me after talking to somebody. And I think, you know, that's the, the, the key message that it's, it's good to talk um, for those who may be old enough. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> to remember a certain advert from a, one of our partners. Um, yeah, it is very good to talk um, and it really helped me. And I must admit as well that when um, I was initially going through the my, mental, my depression, because that's what it was diagnosed as, um, there was a boss that I was working with at the time and um, he recognised in myself I'd been making silly mistakes at work. I wasn't my normal self. I wasn't arguing with anybody, but he, it was really important that um, he had that conversation with me because that was a turning point again for me. Um, again, now I'm feeling, I, I felt quite, quite afraid at that time when he told me, and he was quite a good friend as well as a, a, a boss, but I was quite afraid that, you know, I would get into trouble because of this. But he took me to one side, he took me out of the office, he met with me down at the Sainsbury's Cafe, he sat me down and he said, look, Cole, you know, you've just been making some really silly mistakes. Now, this was in 2002. How we speak about mental health now is completely different um, from how we spoke about it then. Um, I said, you know, when you're feeling like this and, you know, if there are issues that you're having, you're really no good to me at work. Now, as I said, I caveat that, 2002 and he, be fair he had all good intentions behind what he was saying what he was saying basically to me was i should um take some time out um as opposed to coming into work and i was so appreciative of that he told also told me that i couldn't take that time as you know sick time as it were you know i'd have to make it up now to, to not sound you know grateful but i would have done absolutely any and everything to not let him down. Not that I, I was in debt to him. He made me feel wanted. He made me feel 
as if, you know, had purpose still. That was really important at that time to me. Um, and it really helped me get through what I was going through, knowing that I had that support from my boss. He sounds like a good boss. And you, you were right in the last almost 20 years, how we talk about mental health has, has changed, but the fact he made you feel valued and he wanted to support you. And right. the fact he knew you well enough, and because, you know, I wouldn't describe you as a glass half full person, Courtney. I'd describe you as a glass full to the brim, <laughs> possibly overflowing in a very good way. But the fact that he knew you well enough and the fact that he actually had the confidence and you had the relationship for him to say, you're not, you're not quite yourself. And the yeah. same with the doctor, actually, what's going on. And, I, I, you know, we often say that about, about mental health and about other conditions, mm -hmm. just spotting the signs that someone doesn't look quite like they do or mm -hmm. is communicating differently, as you say, the kind of sparkle and just mm -hmm. the confidence to say, are you okay? It, yeah. You don't have to be an expert. So no, no. I'm glad. I'm glad you had that. I'm glad you had that. And you're quite right. We always talk about that. I talk to our members on a regular basis that it's important for managers to know who's working for them. You don't have to be best buds, but you know, if you have a rapport, if you have a relationship with an individual. It's easier to have the conversation. It's easier to spot the signs when that person's not being their whole self. Absolutely. I can remember probably around the very same time, actually, Courtney, and I too was going through a divorce. It would have been 2001, I think. And I told my manager that I was going through a divorce and I was struggling with depression. I'd had a diagnosis of depression for quite some time then, but obviously it, it kind of, you know, fluctuated in terms of, of how, how I felt. And he just didn't know what to say. I think he said, he said, why don't you go home and had a bath? Have a bath. <laughs> um, and... Again, for the avoidance of doubt, I didn't have like a personal hygiene problem. I'd, I'd had a shower that morning, but he, he just, he obviously he was so uncomfortable talking about it. I don't think we ever spoke of it again. And um, I was lucky that I had a good support network, good friends, yeah. Yeah. And, and actually it was a good employer. But yeah, I mean, he, he kind of run a mile when I said yeah. depression. It was just, <laughs> It's just a difference in, in line managers. It's amazing, isn't it? It's huge. It's huge. I mean, but we really talk about that, don't we? It's just a human thing. It's just a human thing. It absolutely is. And um, if anyone listening to this doesn't know the stats, um, the stats that often get quoted, I think, by their mind are that one in four people in the UK will experience a period of mental ill health each year. And um, I've, I've shared with you before, Courtney, that the reason I started talking about my experience of depression was at the end of a conference on mental health that I was speaking at. And all day, these very, very well-meaning people had spoken about people with mental health needs as though they were other and as though they were them, not us. And so I stood up at the end and said, well, actually, 25% statistically of people in this room, maybe about 50 people yeah. are are us actually yes. not them and us and I said and I count myself amongst them and this all the other speakers on the panel after me um then talked about their own mental health and mental ill health it was like I'm Spartacus or something <laughs> but just that kind of relief that people seem to feel about it being out there and talked about it and the amount of people that said to me afterwards gosh you're brave yeah and it, it didn't particularly but it obviously meant a lot so you're doing it a very good help, thing today it? it does help though doesn't it it helps when Somebody kicks kicks the the, the, the conversation going, um, kicks the conversation off, as it were. Um, I, I remember being in a meeting myself and talking about my mental health, and I was in a room full of fifteen employees for this organisation. And prior to that, nobody mentioned anything about it. As soon as I mentioned it again, it was that 
Spartacus moment, everybody then started opening up about their own mental health. Um, and I think there is a familiarity that, that comes with um, talking about uncomfortable subjects. Um, it kind of opens up and, and becomes a new narrative and then it becomes a little bit more acceptable in that moment. And it's how to move from that moment into a wider um, area and then discuss even more so about these things, which is what we, we, we are trying to do as an organisation. Yes, we certainly are making those moments into, well, not being the exception, but actually just part of the fabric of our yeah. everyday lives and our conversations. Exactly. The theme of this year's World Mental Health Day is mental health in an unequal world. And some people will remember that a couple of years ago, we did some research about men and mental health. And it really struck a chord around men feeding back that they really felt the pressure to be, I won't do the air quotes, there are too many of them, but to be to be strong and provide and mm. not show a weakness I mean, very, very strongly. And you've, you've kind of touched on this very briefly already, but you have the added lens of race to yes. add to that. Yeah. So how does it feel as a black man to talk about your own mental health? I mean, have you experienced microaggressions that have affected your mental health? Yes, I'm, I'm happy to say my age, Diane. I'm 55 years of age, and in those 55 years, I've definitely experienced, you know, microaggressions. I've, I've experienced out racism. Um, how has that affected me? It has played a... Uh, uh, it's weighed on me quite a lot. I think what we tend to do over a period of time is find coping mechanisms to deal with it instead of talking about it and calling it out for what it is. Um, and I think when you start internalizing it like that and finding these coping mechanisms, it can it can weigh heavily on you, you know, with the George Floyd incident that happened um, very recently. It was, I was sitting there and thinking to myself, well, do you know what? Am I really surprised? I'm just tired of all of this. Um, and when you started thinking about how people would be marching down the road and stuff like that and how, how, how we are still trying to, in, in my lifetime, have a voice, it becomes something where I start thinking to myself, you know, are things going to ever change? But... It felt like a moment of change for just a brief instance, because when I looked at the television, I saw not just black, my colour, walking down the road, I saw a lot of white people walking with us down the road as well. And that's, that, that really lifted me somewhat. Um, if you're looking for something to counteract, you know, bad mental health, that made my mental health quite good. Um, I think the downside after that is, again, those microaggressions that are out there. Sometimes I'm walking down the road. Um, I like to walk since we've been uh, in this wonderful time that we're in now, this new new age. I am working from home and, and I walk in the morning, but it's very early in the morning. And if I'm walking down the road, I am very conscious of seeing a white person, white woman, and I, I will cross the other side of the road. Or if I'm walking down the road with my hoodie on, she may cross the other side of the road. So the microaggressions are always there and the microaggressions weigh heavily on you. And I think you get to a stage where you just accept them. I don't think that is the right thing to do. We should not be accepting things. Um, and, and like you say, we should be calling, like I said, sorry, we should be calling things out a little bit more. I also remember walking, coming back from a, a, a night out with some friends, 
and um, me and one of my colleagues who was a um, white female, we were walking onto the tube at Ash Rides. And I remember there were a group of um, white coming home after a couple of pints on a Friday night, as you do. I remember walking past them and there used to be an advert out and there was a, there was a it called Jacob's Club and the song that was, if you like a lot of chalk on your biscuit, join a club. And I remember walking past these guys and they started missing it as we were walking past. And that, and I turned around and I just thought, why are they saying things, things like that? And it really got me upset, but there's nothing you can do. Unless me, I'm me, fight five burly brothers, it wasn't going to happen. But again, you know, it's this thing where you hear these things and it does weigh heavy on you. And also in our culture, it's very, uh, I mentioned it earlier on, it's, it's something that is really unheard of to speak outside of the family, outside of a certain circle about your your mental health as, and going to a stranger um, and talking about it is is something that is almost unheard of. I, I, I couldn't encourage it enough, so much so that I even trained as a counsellor um, because I wanted to be able to give the same grounding back to somebody um, that was given to me by my counsellor. I'm still um, trying to process them whistling that club tune to you, I, I am of a, a similar a similar vintage to you, Courtney. I'm 48. And, vintage, um, I love that word. Vintage, um, <laughs> it's class, it's classy, isn't it? Um, but but it, it just it never fails to shock me. Actually, just those those stories of people just. Anyway, I, I won't go into into a big rant, but that it's just it's just so awful that kind of thing happens happens to you. And I, you know, I'm fortunate in that. I don't experience racism apart from uh, around Brexit, possibly. <laughs> uh, um, but as a woman, um, a white woman, sometimes I realise that people just are ignoring me. Uh, there's, there's one particular incident a couple of years ago in a, in a taxi, I think in Leeds. And I was with my now husband and his grown up nephew. Mm. And I can't remember what they were talking about. And but it was something I knew about. It was something I knew quite a lot about. Mm. And I tried to join in the conversation and the taxi driver just talked over me. The male taxi driver just talked over me. I started to think, is my voice actually coming out of my face or not? (laughs) And it was awful. And, And the thing that. I think stayed with me more because mm. when we got out of the taxi, I mm. said to to John and Tommy, I said, "God, did you did you notice that?" And they hadn't noticed it. And when I said, "But did you not see that when I, I tried to join in and tried to say stuff, he ignored me?" And then they sort of went, "Oh yeah, I suppose he did, didn't he?" Mm. And it's that thing when you you notice it, and other people it just it just passes passes them by. Yeah, it just goes over their head. Oh, totally over their head. Yeah. Um, but it is getting talked about a lot more, thank goodness. And yeah. this summer, from Wimbledon to the Olympics and Paralympics, mm-hmm. we saw and heard people in the public eye speak about their own mental health, yeah. often with the added intersection of race. So young sportswomen such as Simone Biles and Emma Raducanu talking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. their mental health in public. Mm-hmm. So. You know, how, how do you feel times have changed in attitudes to, to talking about mental health? We have come a long way. Um, we've still got a long way to go. Um, I do believe that having some of those sports stars talking about mental health has definitely changed the narrative. Having royalty coming out and speaking about their uh, mental health definitely has changed the narrative and it's allowed people the freedom to speak about their own mental health as well. Um, 
for those young people, and I think that's one of the things that we have to take on board as well, is that, you know, for me doing this, going back to a question you asked earlier on as well, you know, if there's a young black Courtney or a young black Courtney-esque, well, actually, it could be Courtney either way <laughs> with my name. Um, but yeah, if there's a young male Courtney or if there's a young female Courtney out there um, uh, that, are, that are of colour and they see me speaking about it, I hope this will be something that they can also um, take strength from to know that they can get help as well. And, and it's really important for us to allow those young voices to be heard because I think that's one of the things behind... Um, mental health is that you know you, you you almost feel as if you you don't have a voice you can't speak to anybody no one's going to understand but it's time now that people understood much more and much better than we did and and speak more more openly but also for those who are listening to be more empathetic and understanding um for organizations to understand that somebody doesn't have a mental health condition um, uh, six till 12 uh, outside of core hours you know it's something that works with them that stays with them all day and in, in trying to stay on top of their workload and be the best that they can at work they then have to struggle with the whole process of what they're going through plus delivering uh, and being the best that they can at work, then going home and being a brother, a mother, a son, or whatever it may be, um, to others. Um, so yeah, there's a lot going on, and, and we need to take a little bit more time to just say it's okay, not be okay. Absolutely. Wouldn't wouldn't it be uh, wouldn't it be handy if we could schedule when we felt bad? <laughs> I'm doing a mental health condition at about 3.30. Yeah. <laughs> 3.30, just for 15 minutes. Just for 15 minutes. Yeah. It would be quite convenient, but alas, as you say, it doesn't work, it doesn't work like that. And um it's it's been really interesting for me around um Emma Radicanu, um, particularly because we went to the same school, um, admittedly exactly 30 years apart and you really don't want to see me on a tennis court it's not pretty but I, I almost certainly had depression from the age of maybe about 15 16 that sort mm. of age mm. but nobody talked about it then uh mm. you know it, it just it, it just wasn't it wasn't a thing I don't think I'd even heard the term used so you know we've still got a long way to go but we have actually made huge strides in yeah. In, in talking in cultural acceptance definitely i mean the other the other sports thing this year that some people might have noticed was the euros and there again there was the awful actually additional and overt link from mental health to mm. race mm. in the context mm. of the very young yeah. very lovely England football players in yeah. Euro's final penalty shootout. I mean, this is this is a huge question, but you know, what what more can we do as a society to tackle this? Are you going there? <laughs> okay, we're, we're, we're going there. We're going there. Okay, so uh, I must remember, I, I I sat down and I cheered on England, and I and I will cheer England on because England, the England football team looked pretty much how the England football team should do. It represents England. Um, and that's a really good look. So I was all in from, you know, the very beginning. And I watched the progression all the way through to where we got to the final and we thought it was coming home. And in all 
intents and purposes. It looked like it was, but it's it's a shame when something has to be um, uh, relied on in penalties because it can go either way. The pressure that those young guys must have been on, and this goes for anybody that was going up to take that penalty. And this is, you know, some may argue that that's what makes you and all the rest of it. There's an immense amount of pressure that you and I could never understand when you're going up and taking no. that penalty. And I do remember sitting down watching it with my wife. And as soon as I saw the first two goals, I think, that were scored, and I thought, yeah, get in, get in. And then I saw the first black person go up, and I thought, oh, please, no, please don't miss, please don't miss. I can guarantee, and I say this quite openly, I can guarantee that the majority of black people that were watching that most probably felt exactly the same same feeling. So not only did the the, the guys who went on who went up to take the penalty for feeling this pressure, but there was this immense pressure that most probably every black person was feeling at the time watching those penalties going in. And then when the first one didn't go in, and then the second one didn't go in, and then the third one didn't go in, and the youngest one, Saka, I just felt my, my heart bled for him. What I have to say though, and you know, that's why I'm, I've got so much time for Gareth, um, the, 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 the England manager, he just went up to him and hugged him and said, it's okay. It's all right. Now, I don't care who's out there who thinks it may not be okay or anything like that, but that was an immense amount of pressure for a young person. Whether it was the right decision for him to take the penalty or not, that's neither here nor there. He did it. But because he didn't um, uh, execute, the, 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 the England manager went up to him, put his arm around him, said it's okay. I just felt awful. I felt awful, not just for them. I felt bad for every black person in Great Britain at that time. And it sounds ludicrous what I'm saying. You, I it really doesn't. did. I really did. Um, and I sat there and I, I just started saying to my, we, me and my wife, we started saying headlines, we can see it already. And I said, well, forget the headlines, be out on the street. Very recently, somebody told me three young girls, black girls were in a pub and were watching this match. And when they lost the penalty, uh, missed the penalties, the pub, which was majority white, there was some that obviously had a bit too much. They started swearing at them and telling them to get out of the pub. <gasps> and, you know, you're female, you're black. And you're being treated in that way. You know, we, I'm not going to go into current issues about what's happening around, you know, female safety, but a black female in a pub with majority males turning around and getting aggressive with them, that is just not called for. And how that must weigh on their mental health, how that must weigh on other people's mental health when they hear things like that, it's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable. So, you know, those young players and all of the, 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 the drama that came with missing those penalties went far, far beyond what we saw as just missing a penalty. There was so much open racism. There was so much to deal with. We've moved on from them, which is great, but I don't think we should have got there in the first place. But had it not been for those black players who were working, who were playing with the white players, you know, that's the first time in 55 years, my lifetime I was born in 1966, the last time we won anything. And that was, yeah, I know, and that was the last time we, we came close to winning any, well, that's the last time we won anything. But, you know, what I'm trying to say is that that is the closest we've got to winning a major tournament. Yeah, and that was with the coalition of 
with black and white players. And we've not recognised that. All we've just looked at is, or some people have looked at, is just, oh, those black players let us down and all the rest of it. But, hey, <laughs> again, it's, it's, I'm going to say it is what it is because that's how you feel sometimes. But then, again, that's when you, you, you start piling on that mental pressure to yourself and be knowing when really we should be talking and calling it out and saying it's unacceptable and we need to do better Britain. Mm. I, I, I couldn't possibly put it better myself. I totally agree it's unacceptable. I also watched it with an increasingly just sense of dread really but I, I unlike you didn't predict just the mm. appalling abhorrent mm. racism and you know like you I mean I I, uh, I slightly younger than you caught me um, but not much and you know it's I I, I don't watch um uh, ordinary you know uh, football generally but I watch the internationals and I'm so I'm so used to thinking that if England gets through the group stages it will be a blooming miracle and it'll be scraped mm. through and then suddenly mm. to have two consistent tournaments with this brilliant young diverse team with mm. let's uh, also acknowledge as you have mm. a fantastic leader and manager yeah. I've almost gone and blooming done it and, yeah. and why aren't we celebrating that yeah. you yeah. know yeah. Uh, seems just just totally wrong anyway sorry I, I will I, will, I, will I don't know if you I, I don't know if you know I don't know if you know but I I, I sing in a band called the love handles men of a I, I do know that <laughs> and I remember very shortly after we had an open air gig it was a charity gig and I, we our last song was Sweet Caroline and we were just about to start playing it and singing it. And it was to a majority white crowd. And I stopped and I said, wait, guys. I said, listen, this came so damn close to, to I hope I can get away with that word. We came so close to, to winning this. And there are some ignorant, stupid, racist people that are out there that are not recognising and, and celebrating the fact that where we are. And if we're in a, a country where you can do what? you want to you can be whatever you want to this song's going out for all of them and i started singing sweet caroline the rapture of applause that came before we even started singing it that was from the majority of white crowd i must admit that lifted my spirit quite and, and when i came off stage a lot of people rushed up to me and said that how great that was not just the whole session that we did but you know the speech at the end it was it was a little bit more involved in that i think i've calmed it down slightly for editing purposes <laughs> but yes it was it was that things like that are, are other things that help with your mental health and they can music is a great healer anyway so it gives you hope when you see when you see reactions like that so, you know, from sports stars to office staff to frontline workers, yes. everyone wants to feel they are supported by their place of work. Do you think line managers are well enough equipped to support employees experiencing mental ill health? And where can they get help? I suppose, if I'm really honest, line managers are trying to get better. You know, I spoke about my friend John, my line manager, in 2002 and he really reached out to me i think as i said earlier on the narrative has changed however what has changed with that is the recognition of looking for signs and we talk about this a lot at pdf we have a mental health toolkit which has three guidance videos and those e-guidance videos are absolutely fabulous because the first one talks about disability awareness and it talks about the one in four statistic but there's one it, it challenges actually your perception around disability. It's not looking for right or wrong answers. It's, it, it asks questions which let you soul search. And one of the questions that leap out to me from that, that first video talk about 
that if you knew somebody that had a mental health condition and uh, was off for a period of time and came back to work, how would you feel seeing them? Would you, how would you, would you go up to them and speak to them? How would you feel seeing them at work? It's not, again, as I said, it doesn't give you a right or wrong answer. It just lets the, the question rest with you for you to soul search and find out how you would feel. And I love that. But then we have these other two modules which look at um, really supporting line managers, having the, the, the first one of those two is having sensitive conversations. It shows you in a really hands-on way of our role play um, where it looks at a line manager asking uh, an employee, you know, how are you feeling today? The line manager, the, the employee looks at the individual and says, oh, I'm fine, thanks. And you can see the dread in the, the line manager's face slowly go away. They didn't break down, they didn't cry, they didn't do anything. Let's meet back in a couple of months, shall we? Um, and you start thinking to yourself, that was terrible. Why would they do that? And then it shows you the right way of doing it. And, and in that toolkit, it does show you you things like, you know, if you see somebody that um, normally gets on with everybody and starts not getting on with everybody and starts arguing or somebody that doesn't care about their appearance and they're quite you know, well-dressed normally, or even you mentioned it as in a joke, but, you know, hygiene, not caring about your hygiene and things like that and somebody procrastinates a lot. doesn't mean any one of those things means somebody has a mental health condition, but that coupled, I suppose, with the dip in performance, it's time for, and I like to say, for the, 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 the line managers to put their big person's pants and have those sensitive conversations. And whether, whether they have them in work or they move them outside of the office to, to make the person feel more comfortable, it does show you how to do that. So hopefully with videos and toolkits like ours, um, we'll hopefully change the narrative and give those line managers more confidence. Are we doing well out there? I suppose we're most probably not because it's still something that we need to feel comfortable about talking about. So we are slowly getting there and I'm not giving us a plug, but, you know, with organisations like BDF, they are there to support and help um, with those difficult conversations, stroke sensitive conversations and to make disability uh, and long term conditions normal within the workplace. You're allowed to plug, Courtney. All the best okay. chat shows have plugs. So I will um, just, just expand on that. So our mental health toolkit sponsored by our partner, Anglo-American, is freely available to all BDF members and partners. It's got a ton of really helpful bite-sized resources designed for people managers, HR professionals, yeah. and for senior leaders. And we've also got two brand new resources that we are, are uh, just uh, launching to tie in with World Mental Health Day that are on employee well-being and some top tips on that. So do have a look for those. I read them um, this morning, actually. They're pretty brilliant. Good. Yeah. I'm very glad you like them. <laughs> <laughs> and um, finally, what advice would you give to your younger self around talking about your own mental health now? Wow, um, that's a great question. Um, I would say to my younger self, really, that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to put yourself first as well. And the reason why I say that is because I think, you know, we tend to want to look after everybody else sometimes and not look after yourself. My mum has this saying where she says, you're no fit for, you, 
if you if you if you're not fit for yourself how can you be fit for anybody else and there is an element of truth in that that you know in order for me to be the best dad that I have, could be, I had to recognise that I was unwell at the time um, and I had depression. essentially prevented me in um, being the best father I could be at that time for my children. And I needed to get myself right in order to make sure that I could be there for them. I also encourage myself now to talk about my mental health and depression that I had back then to my children as well. Let them know that you are young, you are going through something like this. It's okay to not be okay, but more importantly, please feel free to come and talk to me, I'm your dad. No, I'm not expecting everybody to go to their parents and speak about their mental health and stuff like that. Find somebody to talk to because talking really, really helps. Um, I can't stress that enough. So to my younger self, I would say, look at what you've become. It worked out okay for you because I'm now really married. I've been together for 16 years, 10 year anniversary coming up. Now very good friends with my ex-wife. We've done very well. We have granddaughters. Uh, two lovely granddaughters, and it all turned out okay in the end. But, you know, it took a while to get to there, and support, love, understanding from all those that are around me when I was younger, because mainly I, I chose to speak up a little bit more about it and really helped me to get to where I am now. I have that full glass. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Courtney, for joining me and sharing your story so eloquently and so powerfully. It's the first time you've you've done it on a public uh, stage. I hope it won't be the last. I have a I have a feeling it might not be. Just a hunch. Um, but thank you ever so much. And it's been a pleasure, time. We're going to do this again sometime. We, we will have to, won't we? We can we'll get you on stage singing. Take it on the road. No, no, nobody needs that. Seriously, nobody needs that. But um, thank you for for tuning in to this episode of the Business Disability Debates podcast series. If you enjoyed it, then head over to businessdisabilityforum.org.uk and you can find out more about our resources and services, including our mental health toolkit. And why not give us a comment or rating on iTunes or just tell a colleague or friend about us? You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Acast or Spotify. Look for Business Disability Forum podcasts and subscribe and you'll never miss an episode. <laughs>